This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. I attend the high priest group in my ward because I have been in a bishopric. Not saying that to brag. It's just the fact. They're short on bodies here on the East Coast, so if you come more than once a month, you have a chance to be in a bishopric too. Anyways, this past Sunday, there were a few visitors, LDS guys from out of town, and per usual, they went around the room to introduce these visitors. All of the visitors were older gentlemen, seasoned priesthood holders. The first one gave his name, told everyone how long he had been married. He had been married 47 years. How many grandchildren he had? 23. The next visitor said that he had been married 48 years and had 24 grandchildren, so... The group took notice of that. That was interesting. Had the first guy beat by a year of marriage and one grandchild. Then the third visitor stood up with a huge grin on his face because he had been married 49 years and he had 26 grandchildren. Nodding, he declared himself the winner. This declaration was met with a round of guffaws. You've all heard these type of guffaws during sacrament meeting or some priesthood training meeting when there's some guy standing up there making bad jokes and, (laughs) you know, that sort of thing. So the group, you know, acknowledged this kind of playful competition that was going on. And (laughs) now I don't want to rip on these guys. These guys meant well enough, these visitors, you know, and they're put on the spot. They have to introduce themselves, come up with something clever and. That's the way it went. Nonetheless, had they been natives of my ward, members of the ward rather than just visitors, they would have known, I think, that it would have been kind of bad form to stand up and effectively brag about the number of years you've successfully been married and how large your posterity is, to effectively brag about the fruits of your obedience and diligence Because everyone in my ward knows there's a brother in the quorum whose wife left him suddenly two years ago. There's another brother who has two children who have completely left the church. There's one brother who's a recent convert. Well, relatively recent. But his wife's not a member. His kids aren't. There's no eternal family prospects for him, at least not right now. There's a couple brothers in there who have children, but they haven't been able to get married yet. And so the people inside my ward, since they all know each other, know it's bad form to get up and talk about your religious triumphs in such a self-congratulatory way. Now, I know these guys visiting probably weren't thinking they were doing that, and they, you know, didn't know what else to say, and they want people to get to know them a little bit. You know, that's all fine. Nonetheless, it had this vibe like, I've been sticking with the program forever, and everything's worked out great for me. My dreams have come true. If you guys just do what I have done, your dreams will come true too. 
you know, like they're the paragons of um, the new and everlasting covenant. Now, I'll be holding a Q&A after priesthood if any of you want to pick my brains about my great success. People pick up on this vibe, some anyways, and are disheartened by it, discouraged by it, feel inadequate because of it. It's easy to come home from church after such episodes and think, man, am I a failure? My dreams aren't coming true, or I've got the wrong dreams, or somehow the universe is conspiring against me and my dreams. It's easy to think that way, isn't it? We expect certain things, want certain things, have certain dreams, aspirations. Sometimes we write them down. Sometimes they're just locked inside the back of our head somewhere. But they constitute a set of things, a list, if you will, that needs to be checked off. And if we can't check off things on the list, well, then maybe we've failed at the whole thing. Then we start to think about estates. We kept our first estate, right, in the pre-existence. Then we came down here and, well, we haven't checked off all the things on the list, so maybe we're not going to keep our second estate. Again, a lot of this is subconscious, yet it manifests itself through unresolved feelings of discouragement, anger, frustration, envy. So that when the guys who are visiting, innocent enough guys, nice enough guys, guys who don't know what else to say when they're called on the spot to introduce themselves, when they start talking about how long they've been married and how many kids they blah, blah, this triggers us. It sounds as if they're saying to us, well, I'm qualified for the celestial kingdom. How about you? Have you done all the things you're supposed to? Because if you haven't. I guess progress for you stops forever. That's the vibe we can get. And so it's no wonder after many a Sunday, most of us just rush home, have a bowl of ice cream, make a grilled cheese sandwich, and watch the game. Anything to distract us from this anxiety. Now, I know not everybody feels this way, but a lot of us do. And I hope for those who do, you'll find a little bit of humor here. I think it's a little funny. I mean, it's supposed to be a little funny. Nonetheless, there's some truth to it all, isn't there? The whole thing makes us feel like outsiders. There's some people with the inside track. They just seem to know how to get things done, do it the right way. And some of us on the outside, well, things haven't quite worked out. A spouse is left. A child's disappointed. We harbor a heterodox view or two or many. We just don't seem to be able to launch ourselves into the unknown with blind faith. We have a hard time holding on to this rod of iron as we plow through the mist of darkness. And we have this sneaking, disturbing suspicion that this is all going to come back and haunt us in the end. We're going to wake up in the scene, you know, that that scene from South Park. We're going to wake up and, yes, everything we've been taught is exactly right, exactly as it was taught to us, literally. And we blew it. Off to the terrestrial kingdom with you forever. We'll visit you when we can. Now, that's scary. That's freaky. Nobody wants that. And so those who are just able to skate along without a second thought, or at least the way we perceive it, they're just skating along without a second thought. Oh, man. How do they do it? Everything seems to work out. Maybe there is something to this whole wheat and tares thing we think to ourselves and Well, since life is a probation, 
a test. Uh, maybe we're the tears and we're being sorted out. Well, that's not a good feeling, and that's a terrible feeling to bring home from church. This is the Mormon equivalent of the hellfire consideration. We don't quite believe in hell in our religion. There's no hell. Don't worry. But we do believe in woulda, coulda, shoulda, darn it, didn't do it forever. We believe in the cessation of progress. If only you had tried just a little harder, done all you could have. Well, you could still be progressing into a god like me. But you just couldn't quite do it. And so you're stuck in the terrestrial kingdom forever. Static. To think about what coulda, shoulda, woulda. And so while it's not hell, it's kind of the same consideration for us, isn't it? And the consideration is this. What kind of God does that? What sort of supreme loving being dispatches a good portion of his children to that eternal fate? We don't know. There's nothing really official about this. We don't talk about it. It's a great elephant in the room that no one in the Mormon family wants to talk about. Every family's got its taboos that no one wants to broach. This is one of them. Some on the fringes think up backdoor doctrines, if you will. To get around this doctrine, to get around this hard-to-stomach, unpalatable attribute of God that we all find so difficult. Things like progress in between kingdoms. Well, if you try really hard in the celestial kingdom and repent super hard, it may take a lot longer, maybe thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But eventually you can move to the terrestrial kingdom and then eventually you'll get to... But then there's always a few things like, but, you know, if you haven't been married, you'll never be anything but an angel. Or you can backdoor it into the celestial kingdom, but not to the top tier of the celestial kingdom. Well, this is all made-up stuff. Nobody knows. There's no consensus. Nobody agrees on any of this. In fact, the only thing that resembles an official doctrine at all was laid down by Bruce R. McConkie in Mormon Doctrine, where he stated unequivocally, there's no inter-kingdom progress, no second chances. Everything hangs in the balance. All of eternity hangs in the balance of this life. Well... Even though that book's been disavowed at this point, it still kind of lives on. And so it freaks us out. It freaks me out anyways, or it used to. There's a time in my life where I took everything quite literally, saw everything quite black and white. I'm not ashamed of this because, well, that's part of life. Most of us go through a phase like that. I'm no different. I went through one. Started during my freshman year at the BYU carried on through my mission, and then for several years afterwards. Then I had a very interesting experience. My wife of six months, who I married when I was 24, decided she didn't like me anymore, didn't want to be married to me, and listed among many reasons, some deserved, some not, that I was not celestial kingdom material. She was the daughter of a stake president. He seemed to agree with her evaluation. And so I was out. The facts, of course, were that we were a terrible match. We were immature. She was horribly unhappy because she had married someone she had nothing in common with. Didn't like the idea of living on the money that we earned, opposed to the money that her parents could provide. I mean, who really knows? Nonetheless, the fact that she and her father grouped together came up with this you know, plausible, acceptable reason for breaking 
a temple vow, a vow of eternal marriage, on the grounds that they perceived that I was not celestial kingdom material, well, that struck me as the pinnacle of hypocrisy. And the great irony was that during that time in my life, I was celestial kingdom material, at least in my own mind. I was doing everything right, at least on paper. I'm not saying she would have been happier if she would have just stayed with me. She probably wouldn't have been. I certainly was happier after the dissolution of the marriage. It wasn't a happy time. Still, the reasoning involved, the reasoning that they gave to me, the excuses, if you will, the mitigating circumstances, whatever you want to call them, that they said to me, and I say they because it was her and her father together collectively, that they gave to me that I was not celestial kingdom material. This was not a celestial match. They didn't see me as committed. Well, that was such a towering pile of horse manure, such an obvious self-deception that they were plying in order to make themselves feel better about abandoning a temple vow. Well, that shook me a little bit. That made me think, just what is this Mormon logic going on here? Just what exactly do all these ordinances and requirements and commandments and expectations really mean if some church leader can, under the auspices of his great calling, advise his young daughter to abandon her temple marriage, her vows made before God and angels, because... He judged me, someone he didn't even know as not celestial kingdom. I mean, what does that mean? It would have been much better if they would just would have been honest and said, look, nobody's happy here, you included. And this is a free country and there's no fault divorce and g goodbye, sorry. But they didn't. They thought of a loophole. It was epically Catholic, wasn't it? And the reason I'm a little chapped about it even to this day is because, yeah, I may have been unhappy at the time, but I wanted to keep working at it. I wanted to keep trying. I saw potential. I didn't see any reason to throw in the towel. There was a lot of good. And so to be discarded unilaterally in that manner, well, that hurt. And the whole episode made me start thinking about all these ordinances and requirements a little bit differently particularly if the custodians of these important outward performances, like a state president, a high priest, could so facilely and shamelessly turn the whole thing and blame it all on me. Well, that's, in my mind anyway, somehow missing the point of it all. And the point of it all matters a lot. We talk a lot about the what's, the how's, and very little about the whys, which is basically asking, what is the point? What is the point of commandments, requirements, ordinances, any of this stuff? Is it only so that at the end of our lives we can stand up in some high priest quorum and look back and talk about how many years we've been married and how many grandchildren we have, all heuristics of our obedience, success, diligence, worthiness, is that the point? And don't get me wrong, commandments and ordinances and outward performances, they have their their use. I'm not saying we should chuck it all together. 
But sometimes I think our perspective on the whole thing gets a little twisted, a little out of balance. We turn our commandments, our rules, our ordinances as ways to sort and judge each other. We use them instead of as guidelines, as cudgels to beat each other and ourselves. We use them as tools to forecast what will happen in the eternities at judgment for ourselves, for others, for our posterity. Now, I'm no theological genius, but somehow I just don't think the creator of all that is intended it to be used that way. Paul wrote about this in a book called Romans, one of the most read, most debated, perhaps most difficult to understand books in the New Testament. Libraries upon libraries have been written about Romans, and it's because Romans is full of contradictory and confusing messages about the law, about grace, about the point of life, about ego. It's also been translated a bunch of different times, and so the beauty of the original text is somewhat lost. Some of our LDS thinkers, prominent LDS thinkers, have tackled Romans. Adam Miller comes to mind. He wrote a fantastic book I highly recommend called Grace is Not God's Backup Plan, subtitled An Urgent Paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans, which is really what the book of Romans is. It's just a big, long letter that the Apostle Paul, the missionary Paul, wrote to the early converts to Christianity living in Rome, the Romans. Well, in Romans, Paul says things like, we're all saved by grace, not by the law, not by obedience. It's God's grace that saves any of us, blesses any of us. We don't earn any of it. But then he says, but does that mean you should break the law? Certainly not. You can't break the law. So that seems like a contradiction. That's confusing. He also says things like, there are a lot of people out there that have no law who are actually more pure, more divine, more advanced than people who have the law and are keeping it scrupulously. He says things like some of the most dangerous sins can only be committed when you have the law. And you read this stuff and you come away thinking, what was Paul talking about? I mean, was the guy on an ayahuasca trip when he wrote this? It just seems full of these kind of contradictions that just can't be reconciled. But Paul, I think, is just trying to smash a way of thinking that human beings since time immemorial have found themselves falling into. I think he's saying things like, you know all you do-gooders who identify with being do-gooders who go around bragging about how good you are? Yeah, the laws and the commandments that God's giving, the guidance that he's offering, it's not so that you can go around and feel better than everyone else because you're so good. Turns out even you, do-gooder, are going to be saved by grace, you're not going to earn it. So settle down, take it easy, you're as helpless and weak as everyone else. Paul is talking about a phenomenon that exists now and existed 2,000 years ago and presumably 5,000 years ago. People sorting themselves 
judging themselves better based on their ability to obey something. No do-gooder, of course, wants to hear that. No do-gooder now and no do-gooder 5,000 years ago. What's the point of being a do-gooder if you're not going to get a little social standing from it? I think Paul's also saying things like, if you walk around acting entitled and superior because you have the law, the law itself is enabling you to commit some horrible sin of superiority that those without the law are incapable of committing because they don't have the law. So if you're constantly condescending to people because you have some sort of insider's information about things, that information itself is enabling you to commit a sin that otherwise you could not commit. The sin of being an arrogant jerk. Again, so interesting that Paul 2,000 years ago was writing about this phenomenon, a phenomenon that I believe has plagued every generation of human beings since since Adam. Paul's talking about ego and position and being an insider versus an outsider. He talks about how insiders put up barriers to make the outsiders feel less than, worse than. He talks about how the obedient use their compliance to judge themselves better and others worse. How pecking orders and hierarchies crop up out of the dust around these sort of ideas. How many use the law to feed their egos. And Paul's point is, we're missing the point. We're missing the point of the law entirely. And just because you're missing the point of the law doesn't mean you ought to go break it. He doesn't say that. No, we shouldn't go break the law. But look, let's start using it in the way it's meant. As a guide. As a helpful piece of counsel. Some tips. Some safety measures. And let's leave all the judging to God. Both the judging others inferior and judging ourselves triumphant because of some ability to comply. Well, that was radical doctrine 2,000 years ago. That's radical doctrine today. It's human nature to do all these other things, to be judgy, to look for reasons why you're better than other people, why people are worse than you. And it can get way out of hand to the point where, as a stake president, you might counsel your daughter to divorce her husband for not being celestial kingdom material, which maybe he wasn't, but still, that's a little judgy in my book and missing the point. Now, that's not to say that this experience I had during this early part of my adult life wasn't a good experience. It was a good experience. Like all experiences, it was good. All experience is good. And in this particular case, the good thing was that it made me start to rethink the whole thing. And the final result was that, well, I was really a lot less freaked out by this whole requirement thing. This whole everything hanging on what happens in this life thing. The whole got to earn your way into heaven idea. And thank heavens for that. And I began to have deeply spiritual experiences which were unearned unexpected, quite real, undeniable, and somehow had nothing to do with requirements and prerequisites. 
and fulfilling expectations, I realized God had a path for me, even though my wife left me, even though maybe I gave her grounds, though the grounds she reported to me, namely me not being celestial kingdom material, well, well, that had nothing to do with it at all. The greatest miracle of all was whenever I was feeling like garbage, perhaps believing that these people were right about me, that I was fundamentally flawed, a tear, immutably so, that's when I felt God nearest to me. That's when the warmth of his love poured over me. I never looked at church the same again. Well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That's confusing in a way. On the other hand, how great it's freed me to say things in my mind, at least, like, hmm, that thing that that leader, that stake president, that 70, that apostle just said, well, that sounds crazy. I think he's a kook. And I've never felt guilty about having those thoughts, not a single time, because I've heard and seen even kookier stuff from people who are supposed to be family. That sounds horrible on the one hand, but very liberating on the other. Well, that's a paradox. The other thing it taught me is requirements and commandments are often given to us so that when we're unable to fulfill them, either because of our own actions or the actions of others, we can learn that God loves us anyways. What better way to express your love to someone than to show up when they're at their lowest, when their self-esteem is shot, and then restore it through your affection and acceptance. That was my experience during this time in my life. That experience, to be candid, does not fit squarely with the vibe we get inside the church that somehow we need to earn God's love. We need to earn companionship of the Holy Spirit. We need to earn, become, change, before will, all this contingency stuff. Again, I'm not saying we ought not keep commandments or that commandments are dumb or unwise. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But the idea that God's not looking over us or caring for us or inspiring us or leading us Unless we first do X, Y, Z, well, that's false doctrine. I don't care who's preaching it. That's not been my experience at all. But for some reason, that concept makes us uncomfortable collectively because we love to sort. We love to sort others. We love to sort ourselves. We love to keep score. But if you read Paul, there is no scoreboard. In my own experience, seems to agree more with that view. Of course, that has massive implications, doesn't it, about what we do, how we spend our time. It even raises the question of whether or not we're doing or becoming at all. Or should we just be? Should we just allow? It's hard to imagine our institution, the quote-unquote church, as an institution that facilitates as a way for us to collectively submit and surrender to a being bigger, stronger, above and beyond the institution itself, a being more powerful, a being with different views about the rules, a being more full of love than the institution itself can even conceive of. Well, that's something that kind of bends our brains a little bit.
And since we can't quite get our arms around it, we fall back on doing, driving, becoming, contingencies. But the sad fact is the drivers, the doers, the becomers, the people who make everything contingent upon performance, they are the ones in the end who are smashed and humbled. Not by God, mind you, but by their own creations, by the work of their own hands. It's the submissive, the humble, those who aren't keeping score that seem to really get it. Those people aren't standing at our pulpits. They're certainly not pounding it. They're not going around telling everyone else who qualifies and who doesn't for God's love with great certitude. They seem to know something more, something deeper. It'd be nice if our institution could facilitate that a little more. That sounds like a criticism. I suppose it is, but I mean it in the kindest way. Because I think if we can do that, we'll all feel a lot less burdened by our own beliefs. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.